Welcome to Season 2 of True Enough. Brandon McCowan and Catherine Duvall are your podcast hosts. This season we will discuss many cases, from missing persons and murder to the paranormal. Every episode brings you true facts and suggested theories. Before she heard her husband's voice, she heard his footsteps. They were hurried and heavy, clip-clopping fast across the asphalt highway. Sitting in the passenger seat of her car for the last several minutes, she was relieved. A moment before, worried why he had been gone for so long, she had opened the driver's side door of the car and called out for him. She saw him, finally, under the light from the night sky that came from both the moon and whatever it was. He was running toward the car as fast as he could. While her husband made it to the car, nearly a hundred feet above them, it moved. It moved toward them until it stopped in a position directly above the car, all without making a sound. He threw in his binoculars before sliding into the driver's seat. She could see he was frantic, nearly hysterical. He made a few noises. She couldn't tell if they were laughs or cries. Finally, he blurted, We need to get out of here or we're going to be captured! With the car running, he jerked the shifter into first gear and pushed the gas pedal to the floor. The car's wheels spun off dirt and rocks as they gripped asphalt and started speeding rapidly down the highway. As her husband drove, she rolled down her window and pushed her head and shoulders through to see where in the sky it was now. Around them, by moonlight, she could make out the countryside, the grassy fields, the valleys ridged with lines of forest. But looking up, instead of stars, she saw only complete black. It was directly over the car, she realized. Now she fully understood and shared her husband's fear. Suddenly, the car vibrated. An electronic-sounding buzz coursed through the entire vehicle. It felt and sounded like it was coming from the top of the trunk. She brought herself back down into her seat and rolled up her window. Is that an electric shock? She wondered out loud. She touched a part of the metal frame inside the car, but didn't feel anything. What? What's happening? Her husband asked. The buzzing sounds continued. Strangely, she could feel her waking mind start to falter, as her consciousness started to fade into something else. She knew the sounds were coming not from inside the car, but from above. They were coming from the flying saucer. This month's episode is about the strange encounter of Betty and Barney Hill. It was four days prior to that night when the husband, 39-year-old Barney Hill, had an idea of a surprise for his wife. On that Friday, September 15, 1961, he had requested a few days off the following week from his job with the U.S. Postal Service. He knew his wife, 42-year-old Betty Hill, also had the following week off from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. With this in mind, Barney surprised Betty with the idea of a getaway road trip to Canada, particularly to visit Niagara Falls and Montreal. The trip for the couple would serve as a honeymoon of sorts, however belated, given by that point they had already been married for 16 months. They had been living together in Port Smith, New Hampshire since March of that year, since Barney's transfer to the Boston Post Office. But most of the previous four years of their relationship had been spent over long distance, with Betty living in Portsmouth and Barney in Philadelphia. The couple now looked forward to this trip as a chance to celebrate their matrimony. The two quickly made a plan for their road trip. By then, it was Saturday, September 16th, and the banks were closed. Pulling their resources, they realized they had a budget of about $70. 
Their trip would be about sightseeing rather than spending money on fancy hotels or nice dinners. On Sunday, September 17th, the two loaded up Betty's car. As a safety measure, Barney also packed Betty's pistol. Barney was African-American and Betty was white in the early 1960s where interracial marriage was still banned in some parts of the United States. Barney wasn't sure of how tolerant some Canadians would be of seeing the mixed-race couple and packed the pistol just in case they ran into trouble. The two headed out that Sunday. Over that day and into the next, the hills traveled across Vermont to Niagara Falls, then Toronto, then the Thousand Islands area, finally arriving in Montreal. It was on Tuesday, September 19th, when the Hills heard on the car radio news about an incoming tropical storm that was making its way up the east coast of the United States. The two decided that they should head back home immediately in order to make it in time before the storm hit Portsmouth. By 10.30 that Tuesday night, the Hills had made it to northern New Hampshire, heading south on Route 3. They were well on their way to Portsmouth and expected to be home sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. Passing Lancaster, Betty gazed out the window of her car's front passenger seat. Looking southwest into the sky of the clear moonlit night, she noticed what she initially took for a falling star. Then, suddenly, the ball of light came to a stop. After hanging for a moment in the sky, it started to ascend slowly toward the moon. Once again, it stopped, hovering in place. Then it moved westward, erratically, across the face of the moon. Next, the light began to rapidly descend toward their car. As it made its way ever closer, it would change directions, sometimes ascending and descending vertically, other times again hovering in one place. Meanwhile, Betty had pointed out this light to Barney. She was the first to suggest that it may be a UFO, but Barney was skeptical. A former Army service member and World War II veteran, he suggested it was maybe a small airplane or something else just as conventional. It's just a satellite, he assured her. It probably went off course. The light seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curvy mountain roads. On the horizon, it zigged and zagged, ducking behind lines of trees or out of sight into valleys, only to reappear moments later. It was an illusion, the hills thought. Maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light, too, was moving. But neither of the hills could shake the feeling that this simple stargazing had become a game of cat and mouse. Hesitantly obliging Betty's curiosity, Barney at a few points stopped the car briefly on the highway so they could get a better look at the faraway craft. At one roadside stop, a picnic area turnout, Betty could see through binoculars that the white light was really an object spinning in the air. Barney, she told her husband, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're completely ridiculous. He knew she was right. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What was this light? And why was it toying with them? They quickly returned to their car and continued driving. While Barney focused on the road, Betty kept watch of the craft, which by this point they knew was clearly following them. It darted right and left over the road, then abruptly it shot past them, overhead, and for a moment they lost sight of the craft. Then it appeared right in front of them. After rounding a slight curve near Indian Head, they came upon the craft hovering almost directly above their path. There it floated, in complete silence above the treetops, nearly 100 feet above. Barney abruptly stopped the car. Keeping the engine running, he stuffed Betty's pistol into his pocket and opened his door. The craft, possibly in response, glided silently leftward over the highway to a field just off the road. Leaving Betty in the car, Barney rushed into the dark field and looked up. What he saw was as big as a jet, but as round and as flat as a pancake, 
with two rows of rectangular windows around its rim. At arm's length, it was the size of a dinner plate. Barney judged that the craft was between 60 and 80 feet in diameter. My god, what is this thing? He later recalled thinking. Fins bearing a red light at their ends extended from each side. Then, the saucer tilted toward Barney. Peering through his binoculars, Barney saw through the craft's rows of windows a group of around ten thin, human-shaped figures moving with military precision. They wore shiny black uniforms with black caps. The figures moved suddenly, rushing about in a corridor, appearing to manipulate controls. But one figure remained at the window, staring down at him. Its skin was gray. Its eyes, extremely large and black, wrapped around to the sides of its elongated, hairless head. Barney could tell immediately. It was not human. Barney could feel the gaze of the being's large, dark, haunting eyes piercing straight into him. He tried to bring his hand to his pistol, but found he somehow could not. As the craft began to descend toward him, a voice told him not to put down his binoculars. Barney felt that the voice, seemingly inside his mind, appeared to come from the being standing at the window. From the bottom of the craft, a ramp-like object began to extend outward. The being relayed another message. Stay there, and keep looking. Just keep looking, and stay there, and keep looking. Just keep looking. Barney was startled. We're about to be captured, he thought. He forced himself to drop his binoculars to his chest. Yelling hysterically, he ran back to the car. Stomping on the gas, Barney barreled the car down the road as Betty attempted to track the craft, craning her head outside the car window. Without explanation, loud, rhythmic beeping sounds from the car's trunk vibrated the entire vehicle. The couple felt instantly drowsy and lost consciousness. It wasn't until they passed Ashland that they heard another series of buzzing sounds. The couple realized they had no memory of speaking to each other since Indian Head, which by that point was nearly 35 miles behind them. Rather, they could only recall hazy memories of coming upon a roadblock, seeing a huge, fiery red-orange orb resting on the ground, and feeling a strong need to see another human being. Expecting to get home around 3am at the latest, Betty and Barney noticed as they entered the Portsmouth city limits that, oddly, dawn was nearly breaking. Upon finally arriving home, the couple felt far from relieved. They felt dirty. They found that their watches had stopped working. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed, and Betty's dress was ripped. Barney noticed the kitchen clock read a little after 5am. They had arrived home much later than expected, by at least two hours. Betty and Barney realized they had missing time they could not account for. But they both agreed. What they had both seen and could recall from earlier that night really had happened. The next morning, Wednesday, September 20th, the couple still felt uneasy. Barney noticed his back was sore. He also noticed the legs of his pants he wore the night before were speckled with bits of plants. Barney suggested they tell no one of what they saw. Betty, instead, phoned her sister, relaying to her the account of their night. Her sister went on to inform a few other family friends. On the advice from one of the family friends, a physicist, Betty tried an experiment. She took a compass and went to their car. As she circled around the car, the compass was dormant. But then she noticed several half-dollar-sized spots on the lid of the trunk, which appeared as if they had been polished. She placed the compass on the spots. As Betty watched the needle spin wildly, a feeling of unexplainable terror crept up inside of her. Barney, reluctantly, along with some neighbors, ran the same experiment multiple times with the compass and the strange markings on the trunk, all with the same result. The next day, 
Betty, worried about radiation exposure, filed a report of their sighting with the local Air Force base. Barney, again with much hesitation, accompanied Betty in making this report. The following Saturday, Betty, an avid reader, checked out books from the public library on UFO phenomenon. In one book, she found the address for a civilian UFO interest group, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, the NICAP. In the subsequent weeks and months, Betty began to have nightmares. Disturbing and perplexing ones, these nightmares included her conscious recollections of the UFO sighting, but then went further into that night to parts she could not consciously recall, of being captured and taken aboard the UFO itself. In private, she wrote down her memories of these nightmares, eventually piecing these writings together into a logical, linear narrative. Barney, meanwhile, developed increased anxiety, high blood pressure, and ulcers, which didn't respond to conventional treatment. His long commute from Portsmouth to Boston each workday, along with a daytime sleep schedule, did nothing but exacerbate these maladies. By December of 1963, given their increase in ever-present stress, the couple sought mental help. Through the recommendations of friends, the two would end up meeting with Dr. Benjamin Simon, a renowned psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in hypnotherapy. Over the course of several weeks, Betty and Barney separately participated in hypnotherapy sessions with Dr. Simon. Both slowly began to relate their accounts of that night in September, two years before, that had been hidden in their subconsciousness. These accounts, together, revealed a startling story. After the buzzing sounds ceased, the two continued on until Barney felt compelled to take a sudden turn, left off of Route 3. Crossing over a steel bridge, he again felt the need to take the car another left. On this narrow road, lined with trees, the couple came upon a large, red-orange orb of light. In front of it, around ten quote-unquote men stood in the road, swinging their arms like pendulums as a motion for Barney to stop the car. Barney, feeling forced to stop, was surprised when the car engine abruptly died at the same moment. As Barney tried to restart the car, the men in front of them split off into two groups. With a strange, unnatural gait that swayed side to side, they approached each side of the vehicle. Betty, who was, up to this point, not frightened and rather curious to meet this group, finally saw their inhuman faces. The men were human in form, but shorter, a little above five feet tall, with grayish, hairless skin. Their heads were large, and held eyes nearly as large, taken up almost entirely by iris. Beneath the eyes were large, flat noses. All were uniformly dressed, wearing military caps, jackets with no zippers, dark trousers, and low boots. Betty was terrified, more than she had ever been in her entire life. She grasped her door handle, ready to escape into the night, but at that moment, one of the beings opened her door. The beings directed the hills to get out of the car. At this moment, Barney, in a peaceful trance and with his eyes closed, was held up by two of the beings as they dragged him, with the toes of his shoes scraping along the ground. The other group took Betty, who, in a fight to get away, tore her dress, but the grips the beings had on her arms were surprisingly powerful. The group ushered the couple into the disc-shaped craft they had seen before. It was as wide as her house was long, Betty would later recall. Inside, the beings took them through a curved corridor and placed Betty and her husband in separate rooms. In these rooms, with curved walls and a large light hanging from the ceiling, each was asked to climb up onto a metal table. The table was short. Barney, lying across it on his stomach, felt his legs hang over the side. During the examinations, the beings removed Betty's and Barney's clothes, plucked strands of their hair, 
took clippings of their nails, and scraped their skin. Each sample was placed on clear material, not unlike a glass slide. Needles, connected to long wires, probed their heads, arms, legs, and spines. One large needle, around four to six inches long, was inserted into Betty's navel. This was a pregnancy test, a being informed her, speaking English with a heavy accent she was unfamiliar with. The being, who Betty and Barney would later identify as the leader, noticed her twist in pain as the needle was inserted. He waved his hand in front of Betty's eyes, and immediately the pain subsided. As the leader apologized for frightening her, Betty's fear subsided as well. Other members of the crew burst into the room, speaking quickly to the leader in a language that sounded like humming. Betty couldn't understand what they were saying, but after an examiner began checking her teeth, she realized they had found out Barney's teeth could be removed. She laughed and explained Barney had dentures, a fact of human aging the beings struggled to understand. They shook their heads in disbelief. With her examination complete, the group of beings that had examined Betty left the room to finish examining Barney. Relatively relaxed, she started to converse with the leader. She had told him that no one would believe her experience and wanted something as proof to take home with her. Looking around the room, she noticed a cabinet containing a large book. She took the book and opened it, finding it full of symbols arranged in columns. When asked, the leader agreed to give her the book. He jokingly asked if she could read it. Betty answered it wasn't for reading, but rather to serve as absolute proof of her experience. Next, Betty asked the leader about where he was from. He crossed the room and pulled down a sheet, which rolled out from an opening within the wall. It was a map. On it were several points of light connected together by lines, like a system of routes. She asked from where the craft had traveled, and he responded by asking where Earth was on the map. Admitting she knew little of the universe, the leader replied, joking, If you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in my telling you where I am. He then rolled the map back up into the opening in the wall. After Barney's exam was finished, the leader brought her out of the examination room. In the corridor stood a being that looked similar but distinct from the leader and the other beings. He too was gray in complexion, but shorter in height, with eyes that were completely black. Betty felt this being glared at her. He made her afraid. He seemed to match the description of the one Barney had seen earlier from the field who had spoken inside his mind. As the hills were escorted out of the spacecraft, this being appeared to become angry. In what sounded like an argument, he raised his voice to the leader. The book that Betty had been given as proof of their encounter was taken from her. Betty protested to the leader, but he apologetically informed her that he had been overruled. This made Betty wonder about the social structure on the ship. Was the friendly being the true leader, or rather just an interpreter? Was the angry, more menacing being actually the one in charge? The leader and a few of the beings guided the hills back to their car, Barney first, followed by Betty. The leader told Betty that neither she nor Barney would remember anything of the experience. If the two did happen to remember anything, he told her, Betty's and Barney's memories would be so different that no one would believe them. Once Betty was back in the car, she, Barney, looked upon the spacecraft as it took off. It ascended and became a bright, glowing orange ball, turning over a few times before jetting away into the night sky. Barney was able to start the car and took them back onto Route 3. After about 15 minutes of driving, the couple, feeling peaceful and relaxed, heard another series of buzzing sounds, bringing them back into fully recollective consciousness. This series of buzzes reminded them of the buzzes they had heard earlier, just a half hour before. Later, they would realize it actually had been more like two hours.
By October of 1965, with their hypnotherapy sessions long since completed, the Hills had been able to merge their previously hidden, traumatic memories into their conscious recollections of that September night four years before. By doing so, they had been able to come to terms with their experiences and had started to move on with their lives. However, that month, a local newspaper, the Boston Traveler, published without their foreknowledge a series of articles depicting the Hills' UFO sighting and private hypnotherapy sessions. Suddenly, a story the couple had chosen to relate to friends, family, and a few interested parties became public nationwide against their wishes. Unable to avoid the spotlight and with their previously respectful reputation now in question, the couple decided to come forward with their entire story. The following year, The Hills, working with author John Fuller, published their full story in the book The Interrupted Journey. With the release of The Interrupted Journey, the account of The Hills' terrifying and strange experience on the night of September 19, 1961, became a first in many respects. It was the first widely known story of Americans claiming to be abducted, kidnapped, by extraterrestrial beings. It was the first account of the concept of missing time, a phenomenon found later on in other accounts of alien abductions. It was the first instance of hypnosis being attempted to recover the events within this missing time. It was also the first known description of extraterrestrial beings later identified by UFO interest groups as the Greys. Following a publicity campaign tied to the release of their book, the Hills returned to their regular lives and mostly avoided any wider celebrity status. Barney, seeking to put his trauma behind him, rededicated himself to the advocacy for civil rights. He later took on several local leadership positions with the NAACP and the Governor's Council of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, all while continuing his employment with the post office. By that point, although he had recently started to take better care of his health, a lifetime of cigarette smoking, poor diet, and persistently high stress took its toll. On February 25, 1969, Barney Hill passed away from a cerebral hemorrhage. He was 46 years old. Betty continued her work in social welfare until 1976, but never gave up in her search for answers to the lingering questions she had about her abduction experience. She continued on actively participating in many UFO interest groups. Unfortunately, some of these groups' activities, such as identifying almost any light in the sky as a UFO, were considered unsupportable even by the standards of most UFO enthusiasts. This hurt Betty's public image, turning her reputation from a salt-of-the-earth New Englander who had experienced something extraordinary into something more tabloid. After decades of health problems, Betty passed away in 2004. Her and her husband's story of a strange encounter one night in their lives has lived on and become the archetype of what the world knows as the classic alien abduction story. But to those who truly knew her, Betty Hill was a devoted daughter, sister, wife, mother, and friend. Her optimism, humor, intelligence, and compassion she displayed throughout her entire life could not be overshadowed by anything. Eunice Elizabeth Barrett Hill passed away on October 17, 2004, at the age of 85. Betty and Barney Hill had this crazy crazy experience heading back from a pseudo honeymoon that they were on. And I tried to honestly kind of put myself in their position as I was researching this. And I couldn't figure out if I would be so terrified that I couldn't do anything or if I would be so curious that I just would have the aliens would, would have been like, Hey, we're going to take you with us. <laughs> I, I working on this episode, I was absolutely terrified. 
I know. Just <laughs> listeners, FYI, Brandon's biggest fear is tall grays. Well, I didn't want to I didn't want to come out with that. But, uh, but the, the secret's out now, buddy. The secret's out now, yes. My biggest fear in life is tall grays. Is, is tall, it's tall grays. Yeah. I mean, well, gray aliens. In general. In general. Short or tall. Which, which is what, you know, the, the Hills apparently encountered. And for why, for one, in researching this episode, I believe in in their encounter. I believe it happened. I, I don't know about you, but I do believe it happened. And I believe it because these are two people that, as an interracial couple in the 1960s, they do not need to draw any more attention to themselves. Agreed. And they never sought publicity. Right. After this encounter they, they, that allegedly occurs, they don't, necessarily, they don't necessarily try to publicize. Agreed. And, and Barney wants to even try and forget it. Um, Agreed. And he needs a little convincing. Exactly. Betty. But we'll get into that. Yeah. And, Be- and Betty, of course, wants to investigate it. And they both have, you know, stable careers and a public life advocating for civil rights. And, and both have something to lose um, if they do decide to go public with it. Agreed. Agreed. Um, which was which was one of the remarkable things that I found about this case. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I believe something happened. I do not believe it was to the level of detail that Betty says it happened. And even Barney struggled with that, that he knew what he saw as far as the craft and he could see beings on it and was like, holy crap, we're in some shit now. Right, right, right. You know, I, 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 I know that that part happened, but when it comes to the details of Betty saying we were taken aboard this craft. We had all kinds of medical experiments done on us. They took our clothes off. They used needles. They took skin samples and were having a joke about Barney's teeth coming out of his face. And I giggled and said, well, that's just aging. And the aliens couldn't comprehend it. So what do you think did happen after Barney saw the the craft and saw the occupants and that saw that is the ultimate question because they have no memory after that after they got back in their car and raced down the road there's nothing i don't know what happened but i don't think that betty was on this rock and spaceship joking around with the leader of the aliens it it just doesn't fit with me and the reason it doesn't fit is because she these memories were brought about through dreams and through hypnosis which we know is highly suggestive as soon as they got back she went to the library and did a lot of research she could have read about other encounters she could have read about aliens she could have read about a lot of things the mind is a funny thing i know when i read something particularly riveting i have crazy dreams about it doesn't mean that it happened. And, and and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Simon's method of, of hypnosis. Um, uh, Which was, was mainstream at the time. Yes, yes. It was developed and, and used in World War II. Uh, he, he developed and used it in World War II uh, to treat soldiers with, uh, with who, who were suffering from what we would later know as PTSD. PTSD, yeah. Um, and, and he makes it a point to the Hills when they start um, this therapy that it's not meant to find the objective truth of what really happened, but it can only find what they perceive as happened to them. Right. And um, may, maybe that's the yeah. answer. That's their perception of what happened yeah. to them. 
I, I, I just, I know something happened to them. I just don't think it was quite to the detail in which Betty goes into just some of it. Like, seriously, are you really going to be joking around with the leader of the aliens? I feel like that's what makes it so distinct. Like the fact that like she describes this, I think it, it's not like other abduction claims later on where it's cold, sterile environments of, of these mean looking aliens. But these guys that, are just giggling about his teeth that come these, out. And I'll talk about that a little later, but, but these mean looking gray aliens with their big dark eyes taking you and teeth and just I have teeth and just like you know poking and prodding and sticking things where they shouldn't go um <laughs> this is a different account which uh, which I I grant you I grant you I, I definitely do I mean and, and a lot of other people have speculated and said well it was weird at first that Barney's experiences were exactly the same and my explanation is well when you have a weird dream and you wake up from it the first person you're going to tell is the person in bed with you. So of course his memory, the, the mind is a funny thing, but they weren't exactly the same. Like he, like, and that's, that's another intricacy about the story that makes me believe it more is because their tests were different. Their tests, like, well, the tests were different, like, but <clears throat> like we don't talk about this in, in the episode, but his tests were for, uh, there was poking and prodding, taking skin samples, checking, you know, skeletal structure, things like that. But for him, he had something inserted in his rectum. He had um, uh, something placed over his genitals, which apparently took a sperm sample. And all all without pain. He describes it all without pain. Where, well, how did is, Betty's have pain? Exactly. That's, and the fact that it's different tests that have different results for, for each of them. Well, they're male and female, so that does make sense. But the encounters that they're talking about are... They seem to have the same kind of stories about them, which is kind of what bothers me. Mm. What also bothers me, I know, is that at one point, Betty said, or somebody who was taking a look at the dress said, oh, yeah, there's a hole right in the dress, right where that needle would have gone through, which contradicts Betty's story. And Betty agrees with that and says, yes, that's where the needle went through. But, it, but prior to that, she said, oh, they took our clothes off. You, you've got a contradictory story from Betty well, herself. Well, the account that I heard in, in, and this is from one, um, the, I forget what, the tra like the travel, it was a, a documentary about it, um, which I'll, which we'll cite in, in the Way show. Way to substantiate, dude. Yeah, it was a documentary we'll cite in the show notes. It, it was called like something, is that there is a stain uh, on Betty's dress yes. around the navel, which had her DNA. And this stain is, is consistent with her story of if she was pierced in her navel, if she puts the dress back on, she would have bled around that area. Um, or However, you, she, they never said that they had any physical evidence on their own bodies of needle marks or any or bruising, which you would have from needle or anything remotely like that. When they got home, she left her dress in a lump. Then, you know, they both showered because they felt dirty. And then the next day, she noticed a red powder on her dress. I think it was pink. It was a pink or, I'm sorry, you're right. Pa a pink powder. She hung it on the clothesline. It blew away. She never washed the dress. She hung it in her closet. It was ripped. They And there somebody did do a test on it, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be signed by a doctor. Yeah, it was the document it was, that I have. It was inconclusive. So. And, but they supposedly they did find something on it that they couldn't, tell what it was but at the same time because it wasn't 
signed by a doctor, I'm like, you know what? I could throw together a document like that too. <laughs> Doesn't mean I actually did anything. So let's talk about the evidence that was apparently recovered. So we, so we already talked about the dress. We talked about the pink powder. We talked about the stain uh, of Betty's, Betty's DNA around the navel area of the dress or the waist area, I guess. What about the trunk of the car? What about the trunk of the car? Well, the, the trunk of the car with the um, half um, dollar right. spots that are smoothed over um, that um, caused a, a, a wild reaction um, when the compass, the compass spun wildly when it was placed upon it. And that that's a mystery. Again, I, I'm not denying that mm. something happened. I just don't think that it happened to the detail that Betty said it happened. Okay. Okay, and I, I can't. I, <laughs> it's it, hard to argue with that. Yeah. Which is I mean, <laughs> why I said it. Uh -huh. um, what about so? So I, I, let me bring up for a second the map of the of the like the star map, I guess they call it, oh, or, please the, do. or the map of the roots. Um, so Betty would later, under hypnosis, draw her account of what the map looked like yep. to, to her. Yep. And for a long time, it was thought to match up with a real star system in our galaxy. Right. I think um, a school teacher matched it up. Yes. Yes. Known as a Zeta Reticuli. Yeah. Um, but later was found not to match. Yes. Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm fine with it not matching exactly because like. For, the universe is big. It's big. And for like, okay, you show me a map of the United States. And you ask me to draw it. It's going to get a little wobbly around some edges. And it's not going to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> like Florida is going to look a little way too long, probably. And. <laughs> Um, it's hard to draw that hook to, around yeah, Massachusetts. Exactly, too. exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I but, agree. But it's still amazing that it's so close that it could match something. Um, so, we've, so I, I think the fact that she saw this, um, and it's something that that in the, in the '60s you wouldn't really ever see coming across. You would never come across it in, in normal life. Let me tell you something about the '60s. <laughs> There were a lot of psychedelic drugs going on. You, a lot of people saw a lot of things. But we have no we have no evidence that Betty or <laughs> No, I'm, I'm I'm not suggesting right, that they right, did. Right. <clears throat> but I but I also would rebut with this. I can draw a bunch of bunch of goddamn dots on a piece of paper too and tell you that they're a star system and they won't match anything. It doesn't mean shit. I think the fact that it was close to Zeta Reticuli, if not exact. Uh, I think it says, okay. it says a whole lot. So I'll rebut that too. She did a lot of research. She went to the library. She researched multiple stars and solar systems. Of course, I could come up with that too. But but, but that but that the star system, the, the, the mapping of it of Zeta Reticuli wasn't found out until much later on after her. Encounter. I suspect that's a whole honking coincidence. I, I I don't think so. I don't think so. I so, think it is. So let's move on to. Oh, let's. <laughs> From the Hills account, I think it's interesting that, unlike other accounts, uh, or at least unlike most accounts I've heard, that she describes that two types of aliens: the um, you know five-footish ones that have um, large eyes, but they're irises, um, and then the, the the shorter one that has that is the traditional gray alien that would scare the crap out of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I think that, that that intricacy again that fact of that story again that she encountered two types of of, of beings says to me that this adds credibility to it. Um, uh, to rebut that, I can. Um, there's one Outer Limits episode that references one type of aliens. There were a number of movies at the time that reference different kinds of aliens. 
You could pull that from anywhere. So they touch. They cite to. I looked at that Outer Limits episode, and we'll 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 mention that in the show notes. I looked at the episode, or I looked at the at the, at the image of that alien in the episode. And I didn't see a resemblance. Same thing. With you the, wouldn't. Same thing with the Invaders from Mars uh, movie that they also cite as as could have possibly influenced the Hills. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying she pulled it directly from that, but again, yeah. the brain plays funny tricks it fills in gaps especially under hypnosis or in dreams or what have you you could conceivably have a memory of a small part here and your brain can fill it in for you regardless of whether it is real or not especially under hypnosis that's the things that's the thing about uh, dr simon's method is 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 he he really in his questioning, you can you can hear him ask questions like, "Did this happen? Or did this happen? And or, or did you feel this? Or did you feel that?" He asks leading questions about their experience, which I think you shouldn't ask them leading questions. But but, he, but they say no. This this happened instead, or I felt this instead, or no, that didn't happen at all. I think adds credibility to their account. They they weren't taken someplace, and they weren't taken someplace where that didn't happen for them. I get that you desperately want to believe that this happened. I got to call bullshit on the whole thing. I'm just saying. I'm not. But you, you're not calling bullshit on the whole well, thing. Well, I'm not calling bullshit on the whole thing. I'm calling bullshit on her account of events aboard but you this can, spaceship. But you can't account. If, if you do that, you can't account for that missing time. You're that, right. I, I cannot. I cannot. I cannot account for that missing time. At the same time, this was an extremely tired couple who was at a diner throwing down coffee to get home before a hurricane hits. They were already tired. So I think that may have played a part in it as well. I don't. I don't know about that. <laughs> I know that you're going to say that. Don't make me bring out a picture of a tall gray. So you start screaming no, and no, run no, into the that. other room. Oh man! But let's talk about the aliens for a second because I do have a criticism about this story. Do you? And that is the aliens. These these extraterrestrials. They they are the Keystone Cops. <laughs> this is the Keystone Cop. <laughs> episode of alien abductions in history in the history of alien abductions you know you know why i feel like this if this did happen i feel like this is like okay we're gonna send this new crew down yes yes to, to grab these people and and then there was like the the main leader on the mothership was like oh fuck herman fucked it up again right right, right. god damn it like, this is why so, he's still an intern so, so here's what happens from my perspective from my <laughs> if i'm putting myself in their shoes which are really dumb shoes uh, <laughs> Here's what happened. I'm totally going to get abducted for saying this probably. And I on. am going to be sitting there with a big giant vat of popcorn. <laughs> just being like, take him. They're going to track me down and find me for saying this. But um, <laughs> first of all, they show up in the sky. And they're obviously having a hard time piloting the craft. Because <laughs> they're flipping around. They're going up and down. They're going here and there. I told you not to let your kid drive. Right, right, right. It's like, how do you work this thing? It's my first day in piloting school. I don't. It's it's the <laughs> stupidest thing. These freaking guys, like, like, like. God, you're losing them. Like, God who, damn it. Like who who got certification to pilot these this this craft? That alien should have his license revoked. Exactly, and so I don't know if they're having a, a mechanical problems. They, they never <laughs> mention it. They never mention it to Betty or Barney. Because they would. So my only reasoning that they're making these move, movements in the sky. They're making this geometric pattern of uh, aerial Is maneuvers. one of them let their toddler drive? Right. I don't, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it's, it, it could be in response to 
if they're look if they're gazing down at the white mountains of new hampshire and they see betty and barney's car going through the roads if they see their two headlights you know going and, okay. back and forth i don't know if they're trying to like match it I, I, I'm just trying to think of what they're thinking about. And Man, maybe they had been to a bar before they got there. <laughs> and then the, the second thing is um, the leader or interpreter gives Betty a book. Like, just gives Betty a book. Like, hey, random. Just, just take something. And, well, there's a criticism <laughs> about, like, like people say, like, it's a book. What the hell is a book doing on a spaceship? But, and, but the book is described as having plastic-like pages. Um and, 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 you know, people that skeptics attack it for being rudimentary. Why does an alien spaceship with this futuristic technology have a book aboard it? And I argue. Why not? A, a book is one of the most basic things that, yeah. that impart knowledge to to uh, a sentient being that can read. Yeah, I agree. That has eyes. I, I feel like that's a stupid right. thing. Right. The International Space Station right now has books on it. Agreed. As well as computer screens and systems and whatever yeah. else. And then the map for being a, a, a roll down um, sheet is also attacked. You know, why is it all by skeptics? Why isn't it like a big, you know, glorious display on a flat wall that we see? Um, why isn't digi- why isn't it digitized? Right. Why isn't why- it digitized? Which I kind of agree with that. Really? Like, it's like a map that you would find in a 1950s schoolhouse. No. I, I, but Betty does describe it as, as having a 3D-ish appearance to mm-hmm. what's displayed. And she I, would. So I think it it's probably like electronic paper like we see today. So apparently it's like the first time I've ever done this because they give Betty a freaking book. And <laughs> she didn't take it with her. Exactly, exactly. Because the, because the dad came in and was like, dude, what right, are you doing? Right. The authority came in, this 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 uh tiny, scary looking guy came in and was like, What the hell are you doing? They you like, can't give her a souvenir. You can't give her a souvenir. It's like it's like the interpreter's first day in the job. Seriously, you are so demoted. Right. <laughs> And the interpreter's like sheepishly saying, "Oh, we, you know, I've, oh, been, over, I've been overruled. Sorry, the law came down and said Here's no." Here's a rock. <laughs> Not even that. Just like, <laughs> just you know, explains to them they're gonna... no. And and I, I get it. it's it's a fantastical story. I get it. But it I but just feel like it is so fantastical. It's not. My point is that these um, extraterrestrials are not the ones we hear about later on and so many other claims of like this intelligence no, I on agree. High. it's very much like the 1950s version of the day the earth stood still where the alien on earth is very intelligent and having conversations with people it's very much like that i disagree uh, have I you watched your, that movie i disagree with your illusion but uh, disagree all you want dude watch the movie but i think it's i i just i have to laugh at these aliens because of they're how... just dumbasses yeah, it's like they're seriously come and get us, guys. It's I like dare you. It's their first. It feels. It, fe- it really feels like their first abduction. Just FYI, listeners, if they do come and get us, we will be recording. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally getting abducted for this. Um, anyway, and uh, I will be laughing. <laughs> no, I, I really enjoy your interpretation. I think it is very magical. And for your listeners who can't see what I'm doing, I'm doing a big lots flourish of, with my hands. Finger waving. I think it's very magical and inventive, and I agree. It is a magical story. I just I just don't buy it. But you buy that they saw a UFO. I definitely buy that they saw a UFO. Whether they actually saw beings on it, I'm a little on the fence about. Because Barney said with his binoculars, he could actually see. But whatever happened that night yeah. caused so much trauma. Well, of course it would. That's that, dramatic. That Betty 
that at least Betty felt that she started to have nightmares from it. Yeah. And so but to be clear, she didn't have the nightmares until after she went to the library and started doing research. Okay. I, I, and I don't see why that should mutually exclude her from having nightmares. I don't think, I don't think it excludes yeah, her from having I don't see, nightmares. I don't see that as being a reason. I think, I think that she was freaked out by the fact that they had missing time and did some research and freaked herself out. But I also have to say, anyone who has ever taken a really super long road trip and you're exhausted, and I do speak from personal experience, if you nod off for a second... When you wake up, you are so freaked out that you nodded off that you immediately pull over, but and you think that hours have gone by and it's been like a second. I suspect that could have been something that happened to them as well. Perhaps they never missed any time at all. So let me. So I just wanted to throw that out. So, so, okay, so just I just want to finish my point. Is the diagnosis from Doctor Simon is that? Is that he seems accepting that the couple believe what happened to them is real. Oh, agreed. But he himself can't bring himself to believe in UFOs or aliens. Yes. And he did not believe their story. He believes that they believe it. Yes, yes, yes. And, and Betty, so his, his diagnosis was that Betty had these terrible dreams that she, over the course of conversation related to Barney, and Barney internalizes these. Yep. And. Gives himself an ulcer. But that doesn't match up with Barney's, like core of practicality and skepticism i think he was worried about his wife I, I, it just doesn't seem like he like, maybe he got the ulcer from worrying about his wife not from the actual it just makes him seem really weak-willed to internalize i don't think what, so at all what what Bar what, what betty told told him why and, would you not internalize so, that your spouse is really is very think, upset about but i don't think that's the case i don't think i don't think that's the case where he starts to believe that he felt these things too or he experienced these things too by by worrying about your wife i don't think you start to internalize her experiences as yours. No, I think she convinced him. And I disagree. Like I, I don't, this is a guy that is so skeptical and so practical that he, 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 maybe he got tired of arguing. <laughs> I, I, I was, I obviously believe this happened and you don't, I, I'm not, you believe it happened. I am more skeptical of it. Okay. I believe something happened. I just don't think that it is, again, to the extent that Betty has said. And that is true enough. That I'm afraid to say is true enough <laughs> for both of us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of True Enough. This episode was written and produced by your co-hosts, Catherine Duvall and Brandon McCown. Thanks go out to our research and music sources, which are listed in our show notes. If you have questions, comments, or a case you would like us to investigate, you can email us at trueenoughnation at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter at enough underscore true. True Enough is distributed through Anchor. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash true-enough. From there, you can support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain production of future episodes. Also, please subscribe to us on whatever podcast app you prefer and join us on every episode where we try to determine what is true enough to be believed.